a year or two following the Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera, we have people who are more and more getting into the notion that you can have grotesque figures who aren't monsters, who have uh, souls and who have passions and who are misunderstood and who are capable of love. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. What's a cult film or a cult star? It's somebody or something that the mainstream doesn't get, but the people who do respond to it do so twice as hard. In this episode, we talk to film historian John Soyster about Paul Lenny and Conrad Veidt, who made a masterpiece of sympathy for the grotesque and shunned outsider in The Man Who Laughs. We also talked to Josh Mills about the TV pioneer who looked at the vast wasteland and found surrealism. And we talked to Ben Modell about his latest Kickstarter for a forgotten silent comedian. So enjoy this episode, and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing at iTunes for as long as it lasts, or Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And thanks for inviting us into your home. But couldn't you have cleaned it up a little? If anybody's helping create cult favorites in the vintage comedy world right now, it's frequent guest Ben Modell, who has run Kickstarters for DVD releases of forgotten comedians like Marcel Perez, Alice Howell, and Musty Suffer. His latest, which you can be part of right now, is for Douglas McLean. Who? Uh, Douglas McLean was a leading man in, in light comedy features from 1919 through the end of the silent era. And after sound came in, you know, he makes one or two films so everyone can hear what he's, his voice is like and then moves into producing. But he essentially picked up where Doug Fairbanks left off when Doug made the nut and Mark Azaro and just went off and did the swashbuckler films. Um, he often gets, uh, uh, I always think of him in that, in the, the, the grouping of him and, uh, Johnny Hines and Reginald Denny, uh, these sort of average guy and wacky adventures, uh, these little, fun little five and six real romps. But, uh, McLean was doing those films from 1919 uh, whereas Denny and Hines moved into features after being in six, a series of successful two-reelers. Now, I know you mentioned in the video for this, uh, the first thing I thought of, of with Douglas McLean, which is Walter Kerr in The Silent Clowns calling him a demi-clown. Yeah. And what do you think a demi-clown is in silent movie terms? Oh, I'm, I'm not really sure what Mr. Kerr had in <laughs> In, in 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 mind, and I'd have to re re reread the chapter to to go over his definition. But I think that you know there is this uh, there's this other tier uh, of of silent comedy 
that uh, it's it's not as slapsticky, and it's uh, you know these are the guys who you don't recognize because of their hat or mustache or baggy pants or you know as with Langdon the physicality of a two and a half year old boy. They're kind of normal and, guys. Yeah, they're kind of you know the, I think the only thing that would be uh, equivalent in the short comedy field would really be uh, Charlie Chase. And it's not it's not so much that this this grouping is people who are a level down. They're just sort of running in parallel, but they're not making, quote unquote, slapstick comedies. These are people who, whether they were in musical or vaudeville, uh, vaudeville, excuse me, uh, they were these are these are light comedies. I think really because Reginald Denny's, there's a couple of his silent uh, features have been released and restored by Universal and are just getting a little bit of play at, at festivals. People are re- rediscovering him. And also because pe- he worked way into the sound era, you know, uh, not only not only does he have, you know, he was on Batman, I think, right. <laughs> but as uh, you know, him and Neil Hamilton must have had some stories on while waiting between takes. You know, in in doing some research on McLean and this subgenre, uh, that's when I made this connection that you know, with Doug Fairbanks, he made those films for five years or six years, and then moved into Swashbucklers. And usually, that's where people stop talking about that kind of film. It's the same kind of film that could just it just continues on with some other people, and and they're funny. It's it's just it's like anything else that we're discovering uh, now that uh, hasn't been really uh, uh, available or that we haven't really known about. It's just that we every, we've all been concentrating on getting Arbuckle's films out there and Raymond Griffith and Charlie Chase and some of the bigger names. That there are all these. This is the thing for me is that McLean was was he was on screen on a consistent basis for uh several years throughout the 1920s and was a face as well known uh for comedy uh, as the 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 folks like Buster and and Harold and everybody else it's just that because their films haven't been available uh we just don't know who they are well, I think of it a little bit like somebody like Jack Lemmon or even Cary Grant at times. You could play pretty broad comedy, but at the same time, you weren't a clown. You didn't right. come out of the theatrical tradition of baggy pants and white right. face makeup and all that. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, I mean, among the big comedians, I think Harold Lloyd really is somebody who sort of straddled both in that he really... I, I guess he started early on as kind of a face painting comedian, became a yeah. normal guy, but still built his comedies around big set pieces. And I guess that's oh, one, yeah. one thing you don't see in the demi clowns. It's more situational comedy. It, it's more situational. And, and most probably, uh, I think Arbuckle was headed in the same direction had it not been for the scandal. Uh, and the, you know, the overwork is paramount just had him grinding films out. Uh, but the the kinds of films that that Roscoe was making in the early twenties were the same vein these light these light comedies where he was trying to interject some some physical humor it's it's the same sort of thing exactly yeah all right well let's talk about the two specific films there's two films and I guess you've played for both of them live yeah yeah so tell me about them I'll try to tell you what I remember right <laughs> I remember. Um, one a minute uh, it refers to the uh, the expression. There's one born every minute, um, and it's a very well made uh, film uh, produced by Thomas Ince. Um, I 
I haven't seen it in a while because I played for it uh, at uh, Library of Congress and again at the Silent Clowns film series in 2013. It's kind of a, a scheme picture where he works in a like a general store in a small uh, a small town. Um, I, I wish I could tell you more about it, but I have I just haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, but I what I remember is that it went over really really well at, at both shows, um, and I think it was shown at a Cinefest. Uh, as as well, and and uh, Bellboy thirteen was a film where I think it was mostly lost six uh, in the months leading up to it. I was looking for other things to possibly view for the idea of uh, uh, things that are at the Library of Congress that that would make an interesting DVD release. And uh, I was down for a show, and uh, Rob Stone and I pulled the print uh, that the Library of Congress had, and he and I watched it, and. We were just laughing hysterically, just the two of us sitting in the viewing room and uh, and the art title cards. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, they're just these hilarious, uh, beautifully illustrated cartoons. I mean, every single one of them, but the action and the gags. And it was just we had this moment of how come we never heard of this guy? <laughs> like, really? How did this is this guy is great. And so that's how um, that that film got wound up getting shown at the closing night of Mostly Lost that year, it was a double bill of uh, the bride's play, and then the, and it would, with the show closed with this. And again, it went over really, really well. And I think um, Mike Schlesinger saw it at that Most Mostly Lost, and got it programmed at Cinecon, where it also went over really, really well. Um, so I, I, you know, there's a. That's all I could really tell you about them is that they're they're just a lot of fun. And he's, you know, he's a really engaging and charming performer. It's it's one of these things with a lot of the silent film performers, comedy and drama is that, you know, within the first minute of seeing these people, you just like them and uh, you, you'll go on the, the ride with them. Uh, like, like the way it is with either with uh, Johnny Hines or Douglas Fairbanks. And uh, yeah, and, and the films are and they're really well made and, and clever. And, and there are nice, tight five or six reels. All right. So the history of his work is it was mostly it was I guess early on for Ince, later for Paramount, and you okay. say in the video nine are lost outright, but most of the others are incomplete. Yeah, most of them, and 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 I think that some of the the mid twenties features were released by First National. Okay. Um, so there's there's a mix of different places, but uh, they're all main studios. It's not like. Uh, uh, like some of Johnny Hines films were were initially released by a smaller uh, company and have fallen into the public domain. So these two were at Library of Congress. Exactly. They're at the Library of Congress. Um, uh, One a Minute survives in a very nice looking 35 millimeter print. And uh, uh, Bellboy 13 survives. Uh, we don't know the history on why, but it, it's a very good 16 millimeter print. Print down from what? We don't know. Uh, but it's, it's, in, it's in, it's in good shape. And, uh, so it'll, the both, both films will look as, as good as they can, but they're, they're, they're complete. And, and, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, it's just because, uh, the, of, uh, the, the scarcity of what's, a, what's available for viewing. And, and because a lot, there's a number of them that survive an incomplete form at the library of Congress. Um, it's in the idea of showing something that's missing a few reels. It's, you know, uh, not that great. And he just needs to have his reputation resuscitated. And I think there'll be more interest in finding the ones that are complete, let's say that are at iFilm or um, somehow 
this slipped through my radar, but I know there's one that Blackhawk sold, uh, maybe not for very long. Uh, but that, 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 that's something that's, that, that could possibly be, uh, found in, and, and shown at festivals and stuff like that. So if this goes over, there could be volume two. There could be volume two or a second disc like I did with Alice Howell. That was something where uh, I had planned a single disc. And then because of the funding uh, going through the roof, uh, more film turned up and I just made it a two disc set rather than uh, make it a second uh, disc. It was just easier to to make a se- put a second, make it a two disc set make, rather than having it a, as a separate release. It's just a matter of is there more material and how much time would have to elapse uh, in order to get the the additional material, because I don't like holding things up too much if I can it can be avoided. But if we can, we'll see. I mean, as of you know, it, it took nine hours to fund the whole thing, and then as of you and me speaking right now, uh, it, the we're twelve hundred dollars over the funding goal, and there's uh, you know eighteen more days to to jump in there. So we'll see what happens. Well, cool. And as you say. If people have said, "Why doesn't somebody release these?" It's yeah. your chance to be the somebody who helps yeah, get to them be, released. Yeah, and to be part of and, and to be part of it. It's just I'm doing scoring, and the Library of Congress Film Lab is is doing the the scanning and et cetera, et cetera. But but uh, it, it's it's kind of like voting. You know, if you if you make make a pledge to the project, everybody the more people who do it means that the more can possibly happen. Then you are taking part in. Uh, the the bringing back of this material to the public. The Kickstarter for two Douglas McLean comedies runs through June 28th. You'll find the link in the show post at nitrateville.com. This music, by the way, is Ben playing for Marcel Perez. First thing everyone knows about The Man Who Laughs, the silent movie starring Conrad Veidt, is that the grin carved into Gwynplaine's face inspired the Joker in Batman. But more than that, it's one of the masterpieces of the very late silent era, and there's more where it came from in the short career of Paul Lenny, who also directed Waxworks, The Cat in the Canary, and The Last Warning and might very well have gone on to direct Dracula, among other things, if he hadn't died at just 44 in 1929. Flickr Alley has just released The Man Who Laughs and The Last Warning on Blu-ray and DVD, both from new 4K restorations by Universal, the studio that produced them. John Soyster is a retired professor of modern and classic languages and the author or co-author of several books on vintage horror, He contributed visual essays about Paul Lenny and the making of each film to these releases. And the booklet for The Man Who Laughs contains an excerpt from his 2009 book, Conrad Veidt on Screen. 
I spoke with him in his home in Denver. First, let's talk about Paul Lenny. Tell me about him. Well, uh, Paul Lenny, of course, uh, is one of the uh, what, what we consider great German expressionist directors who uh, came to the United States in the late 20s uh, at the invite of Carl Lemle, uh Sr., who, of course, had come to the United States on his own um, some years earlier and, and with other folks set up what would become Universal Pictures. Lenny uh, was an art director for many films, uh, many of which uh, included Conrad Veidt, and uh, began to, to do his own directing uh, situation as well. Uh, he's uh, noted, I guess, for people who are into cult movies for Waxworks, uh, Die Wax Figuren Cabinet, which had um, a number of uh, great folk in it, including Conrad uh, uh, Veidt. And that was probably his last major film, actually it was his last major film in Germany before coming to the United States. After he did Waxworks, which was an anthology uh, of of, uh, different stories in different times uh, and included Conrad Veidt's Ivan the Terrible and Emil Jannings uh, as Harun al-Rashid and and Werner Krauss as Jack the Ripper. Um, after that, uh, Laney set up a group of what were called Rebus films. Rebus are like puzzles uh, based on pictures and, and letters and things like that. And uh, what they would do is his, he did eight of them, and uh, they would be in two parts. Prior to the feature being shown in a German movie theater, He'd play part one, and it was a short film, obviously, and you would get to cogitate a little bit and mull it over, and then after the feature, they would have the second part, which would give you the answer. So after Waxworks, uh, in Germany, I guess he uh, was open to anything, but the big move came from uh, Karl Lemley invited him over to the United States. Well, let's talk about, there's, there's one thing first about Waxworks, which is, I mean, with its very stylized historical settings, uh, it's usually talked about as, as an influence on Douglas Fairbanks's artiest film, uh, The Thief of Baghdad, which I think is a, is a pretty fair claim. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's, it's a, a, an expressionist uh, film, uh, for the most part, and, and people... Uh, have for years uh, talked about expressionism both in art and in in uh, cinema and what have you, and it's it's a question of uh, what what you're dealing with there is uh, sets and and uh, costuming and logic or illogic. Some people would say, uh, with respect to the human psyche as it's being represented on the screen. Uh, there are people who argue that expressionism in Germany. Uh, arose somewhat out of poverty after World War One, where they didn't quite have the resources uh, due to tragedy and loss of, of uh, you know, personhood and treasure, and uh, so they uh, sort of went. Um, how can I put this? Uh, black and white and sketchy and whatever, uh, as a background and a backdrop for themes that pretty much were concerned with. Um, insanity or um, people's disturbed views of things or what have you. And uh, Waxworks is considered to be one of them. Um, 
so what what you've got in Waxworks, if you want to chat about that for a moment, uh, Laney sort of he was an art art director and an art designer as well as a director. And what he did, the background for Harun al-Rashid, for example, um, who was played again by Emil Yannings, who was a, a little bit at the time on the chubby side, uh, and, and the character himself is a, I guess, a caliph or something who's a lot on the chubby side. The background reflects his physicality. So it, it's, it's sort of where you have the ex- expressionistic sets reflecting I- either the mindset or the physicality of the character that they're, they're meant to underlie. So when you've got Ivan the Terrible, Conrad um, Fight, who of course is very lean and lanky and what have you, uh, he's dealing with uh, spaces and parameters that are very much uh, more narrow. And it's been said that that pretty much reflects his sense, the SAR, uh, he's he's being I don't know what's the word I'm I'm looking for persecuted yes. I I don't know that's that's a that might be the word but it, it reflects he he's feeling entrapped if I may and and so you've got all of this sort of thing and uh, to a certain extent as as you would say um, Douglas Fairbanks uh, thief of Baghdad you do have the same kind of thing, maybe not so much uh, with respect to the sets, because the sets were, for, for the time, fairly extravagant, um, especially for an adventure film uh, where you're not dealing with, with crazy people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, it, you do have, uh, it, it's sort of like every kid, if I could put it that way, every kid at the time who had been familiar with with the literature would would turn around and kind of bend or or, or shape the, uh, the the background and the sets and everything to to his or her own vision. All right, so Waxworks, uh, I think it's safe to say, was one of those international successes that people looked at and and it affected Hollywood uh, and other places in terms of what you could do with set design that it didn't have to be literal reproduction of the world mm-hmm. and could be more mm-hmm. and more subtly. So I think of some of these mid twenties German films, like the last laugh also as proving that it, d- it didn't just have to be obvious paint as it was in Caligari, but you could sort of mold the world to reflect psychology, as you said. Exactly. I have to, you also, uh, and I, I may have said that was his last major work. You know, there were a number of things that did follow after that, but none of them really were of an expressionistic bent, uh, at least according to contemporary criticism and, and, and the couple that I'm familiar with. They're, they're much more uh, typical, um, I don't know, drama, dramatic sort of offerings and what have you, dealing with more quote-unquote normal people. Uh, So he comes to the U.S. to work at Universal, um, and is The Cat and the Canary his first film in the U.S.? Yeah, The Cat and the Canary uh, in uh, 27 uh, was was his first one, and that film is credited for giving uh, birth sort of to the uh, old dark house uh, mystery comedy sort of things uh, that that came in quick succession afterwards, and and we we look at those and in, in silent in the, in the history of silent film, of course, 
old dark houses were usually um, fraudulent situations. If you, there weren't too many feature films based on that sort of a thing. You had a lot of short uh, comedies with uh, a lot of our more famous comedians, Buster Keaton and then Harold Lloyd and all these sort of folk, uh, who would do something where you uh, they would be interacting with uh, supposedly ghosts. Very frequently they turned out to be gangsters or they turned out to be something that he had uh, drunk or was hit on the head with something or was being chased out or some such nonsense. But Cat in the Canary, um, as a feature film, um, brought across some elements of expressionism, but dealt with it in, in kind of a, a quasi-humorous vein. Uh, when it was remade, obviously, uh, with uh, Bob Hope uh, about a dozen or so years later, uh, the comedy element was, was stretched a, a little bit more because, I mean, come on, we're dealing with Bob Hope, sure. and that was that was his forte. But originally, uh, Laura LaPlante and, and, and Creighton Hale, you know, weren't established comedians. They they were general sort of actors and whatever. LaPlante was getting into her own at that particular point. Um, but they were dealing with an established stage play. And uh, so they were making the transition uh, with, you know, some com uh, comedic touches and what have you. But the uh, the, the art direction also, Paul Lenny, uh, was to bring across some uh, expressionistic touches and what have you. So for a lot of people who weren't into, if I can use the expression, artsy-fartsy stuff when they went to the movies, they went to be entertained rather than to be challenged. And this was kind of a new new touch for them and and uh, it 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 grew yeah no i think it's 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 not that you would say it's in any way a profound film as man who laughs w would be but mm -hmm. it's it's a tremendously entertaining film because it's so fluid with film technique and just playful with it you know it's one of those things exactly. that conveys everybody's having a good time making it mm -hmm. it's it, it's the sort of thing that, that, as you said, has different elements. Uh, I, I mean, the notion of, of somebody reading the will and, and all of that stuff. At, at this point, we, we've seen so many takes on that, that you say, oh, for the love of God, right. <laughs> uh, stop already. But um, back then, it was kind of intriguing. All right, we're gathering, somebody's going to inherit, and then the notion comes through that somebody doesn't want somebody else to get the money. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And uh, the, there are threats and all this sort of stuff. But uh, again, uh, there, there are sequences where uh, walking down passageways and what have you, uh, where you, you just say, wow, that's uh, kind of a, a new new way of looking at it here in the, in the United States, whereas in, in Germany uh, a few years earlier, I won't say it was commonplace, but people would wander on in and say, ah, you know, we, here we go, we've got a, a study in lights and shadows and depth and all that sort of thing, uh, in addition to the comedy relief, which we're very happy to have in this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, well, let's uh, segue for a second to Conrad Veidt then. So sure. tell me about uh, his career at this point, uh, the mid-20s. Okay, well, in the mid-20s, uh, Conrad Veidt uh, was uh, still doing quite well for himself in uh, in Germany, and uh, he too was invited to the United States, but it wasn't by Carl Lemley, it was by John Barrymore. And uh, that was kind of an intriguing situation because uh, it, it, Barrymore was making a movie called The Beloved Rogue for um, 
if I remember, released by United Artists, if I recall correctly. And it was about Francois Villon, you know, the, the uh, romantic thief and all this sort of the thing. And uh, he, uh, Barrymore, had uh, seen uh, a number of films with fight in him and felt that he had an, a wonderful presence. Barrymore, again, had... Uh, I won't say was a fan of, of fight, but was well aware of fight being out there and uh, found that he had a, a, a physical presence that was very good. He, he, a lot of people uh, felt that he was a very handsome man. I mean, there were a lot of uh, women who uh, thought that, that he was as attractive as many other people thought the great profile was. But um, Barrymore um, j just wanted someone who uh, could... Uh, be part and parcel of the movie who had a, a physical presence that would not detract from Barrymore's being the center of the film, but at the same token, be a, a good equal but opposite sort of a figure. So he's the one who invited uh, um, Conrad Feithorn all over. The, the film was a success and, and Carl Lemley, uh, God rest him, <laughs> turned around and said, you know, we could offer you some long-term work here rather than just, you know, once and done. So uh, what he did is he picked up and he ended up being in a film called A Man's Past uh, for Universal. And that was kind of an intriguing thing because it, it was a melodrama. But uh, in those days, Universal would tag their films according to the budget that each one was given. And if it was just a, a you know a second feature, a lower piece of junk that we had to deal with because we had somebody under contract we didn't know what to do with, uh, it would be a red <laughs> feather. And uh, you worked your way all the way up to a jewel and then a super jewel. And a super jewel was uh, where Universal spent what for Universal was megabucks. Uh, the bigger companies may have kind of chuckled at it. But A Man's Past was, was that. And again, we're dealing with... Um, uh, sort of a French background. Maybe that's why Lemley looked at the François Lyon situation because it takes place uh, on um, a Dr. Paul Laroche who is on an island, uh, uh, like sort of like Devil's Island. Uh, and uh, so the background is, is sort of the same, although definitely much more... Um, dramatic or melodramatic that that too was based on a play and um that film is lost now i think it's uh, the only film that conrad Veidt was in uh in that was made in america that is still lost but uh it uh it did have a lot of a lot of monetary value and it was the it was the first of a multi-picture Conrad uh, Conrad Veidt contract. I'm sorry. Okay. So um, it's it's kind of intriguing. About a, a week or so uh, before the premiere of that film in in New York City, um, Dracula opened uh, on on Broadway with Lugosi, and um, a, a little bit later on, the consideration was made by. Uh, Carl Jr., uh, with, with Carl Sr.'s kind of half-hearted blessing, to do Dracula for the screen. And they had this huge hunt. I may be getting ahead of myself, but Conrad Veidt was the initial favorite, along with Paul Lenny directing, for Carl Langley Sr. with, with Dracula. He bypassed Bello entirely. <laughs> yeah. And then we get another lost film, uh, which actually could have been the first uh, collaboration in America between Lenny and Veidt, uh, though it didn't turn out to be. And oddly enough, it's a Charlie Chan film, The Chinese Parrot. 
which seems like a step yeah. down into the bees, but maybe it wasn't then. <laughs> well, it was it was an intriguing thing because again, Conrad Fight was going to play Charlie Chan, and um, it was. Uh, during the 30s, uh, of course, just about every uh, major company had a, had a detective. Uh, you know, um, uh, it may have taken the Universal the, the 40s to end up with Sherlock Holmes, but uh, during the 30s, they really didn't have anybody. Or during during the 20s, Charlie Chan had just appeared in a in a serial a, a year or two prior to that. Uh, so there was a certain novelty going on because uh, the character is not the main character in in the in the book um and um it, chan uh, earl de biggers finally realized when when his books began to sell and people took an interest in the character of charlie chan that hmm it, it seems that a, a character who initially uh was uh, the, the fellow who came in from left field or dropped in out of the sky to solve this thing there's a tremendous amount of interest because he's a foreign entity and and he's not um, a stereotypical entity. He's not a Chinese guy working on the transatlantic railroad or the transcontinental railroad, and he's not a a laundryman and whatever, and he's intelligent and he's treated with respect for the most part. So it's an intriguing kind of a newer character. And um, it was felt that that fight, who uh, had obviously appeared in different makeups, um, and was, I won't say heralded as the new Lon Chaney, but uh, he was certainly uh, an heir apparent, if I can put it that way, Michael. Um, yeah, he, he might be the one to do this, but it was a, a little bit later on that he was, Lemley Sr. was talked out. And he, the phrase that they used, which is, is certainly not politically correct, is, is they didn't want to waste this uh, great star on what they called a chink roll. And so it went to Sojin, who was a Japanese, and he himself was noted for a lot of bizarre characters. When we talk about the thief of Baghdad, he pops up again. Um, but it, it it was one of those things where uh, Laney said, yeah, well, you know, let's take a look. I'm under contract. This is, is, is a new thing, uh, so to speak, a, a detective film. Eh, why not? And uh, it's just that fight was moved. Uh, and uh, he a- ended up in uh, the last performance, which uh, was with Paul Fejos rather than with Paul Lenny. And uh, again, um, it's it's a lost film. It's it's even the remake, which is escaping me right now. We'll have to look that up. Charlie Chan, Chance, or something like that. Um, also, is a lost film. So you, you kind of wonder. What what's going on here with that? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're not ready for it, it. Yeah, that might be it. We have to wait and see. Maybe with the coming of yet another millennium, we'll be in good shape in that regard. But um, yeah, so it, that was that was a lost film, and and from there, of course, we moved on. And uh, it, it's it's one of those things where uh, we we say he was. I guess being given all, all sorts of assignments where he has the comedy, the expressionistic comedy, then he has the detective film and we go into man who laughs and, and the two of them combine uh, as they had uh, in the past uh, in, uh, in a couple of films where um, Laney had been the art director on a number of titles back in Germany. He had, he had been the director for a couple of his films 
um, you know, das Ratzel de Bangalore, the rat catcher of Bangalore, and and um, patience and, and and this. But um, his opportunity again to work with him, this would have been his first in the United States to be reunited as director and not merely art director. And then uh, fight was yanked from the film and and put into a, a, a different one. And Sojin was brought in because it was felt that, uh, you know, in those days, as, as I'm sure you remember, and even in uh, most of the films in the 30s and 40s, Caucasians were playing, you know, the Asian parts because apart from people like Anime Wong, uh, you didn't have too terribly many uh, Asians who uh, were thought to be able to step up to their their Occidental counterparts and, and, and do something other than a stereotypical role. Uh, you would have a lot of, uh, you know, you had a lot of Chinese actors and, and Japanese actors in background situations. Uh, but uh, for the most part, it, it was going to be Caucasians. And nowadays, uh, obviously, we frown on that and are very much against it. It was just a, a year or two ago in, in New York, uh, a local um, light opera group wanted to put on Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado and was told, nope, censorship, you can't have that unless you have a totally Japanese cast. And you say, well, this is this is a British spoof on, on all sorts of silly things. All right, so now you get to the film that finally brings Lenny and Veidt together in Hollywood. And I think if you're, you were going to say that Lenny has a masterpiece, it would have to be this film, The Man Who Laughs. You know, just one of those beautifully well-made, very late silence where the technique is at its top. And also a very emotional story. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of those ones, I mean, when you see it in a theater, by the end, it, it kind of sweeps everybody away. And mm-hmm. today it's kind of remembered for inspiring the Joker, but to me, you know, that Veidt's makeup of the, or his, I guess just his look, all he did was kind of open that wide smile as wide as he could, but the idea of a carved <laughs> open mouth uh, yeah. inspired the Joker. Although to me, the other thing it clearly inspired was the Elephant Man, as they both end up, uh, you know, sort ah. of shouting, you know, I am not a, an animal, I am a man at a climactic mo- moment. Excellent observation. Yeah, the Chicos were the ones who, who carved his face, the, all sorts of political things going on. Uh, he was the son of Lord Clan Charlie, also played by Conrad Veidt. Uh It was kind of intriguing, however, though, that the, the, the film um, and, and, uh, was based on uh, L'Homme Cueilli by Victor Hugo, and the, the Americans, the Universal basically put a happy ending on it right. <laughs> um, and, and had a chase scene in it, so they kind of tailored it a little bit to American tastes and expectations. And... Um, it did well, but it didn't do well in Germany. Huh. Uh, for whatever reason, they they kind of uh, felt that uh, it uh, too much too much of messing with the story. Uh, it, it was kind of like you have ten reels of of all this kind of suffering and humiliation and and uh, agonizing and and this, and then uh, you sail off into the if I remember correctly, the sunrise, perhaps I think yeah. it was uh, uh, together with your girlfriend and, uh, didn't, didn't make too uh, terribly much, uh, of a presence. It didn't do terribly big business. If I can put it that way uh, yeah. over in the fatherland. Yeah. Was it successful in the U S? Oh yeah. In the U S it was, it was good. Yeah. We are coming, we're a year or two following the Lon Chaney's phantom of the opera, where we have people who are more and more getting into the notion that you can have 
grotesque figures who aren't monsters, who have uh, souls and who have passions and who are misunderstood and who are capable of love. And uh, whether it's Quasimodo or it's Eric the Phantom or it's uh, Gwynplaine. Uh, and, and I think for a lot of people um, in the United States, it, it was kind of an eye-opening situation, not only with respect to uh, makeup and all of that kind of stuff, but uh, with respect to, um, you know, getting away from the notion of, again, like a John Barrymore, somebody who's impossibly handsome and, and all sorts of, uh, only the t- best looking guy in the film is going to end up with the girl, <laughs> you know, the, the, the best friend and everybody else will be shunted off to the side. And the, the, instead of getting Lucy, they'll get Ethel or whatever. Right. You say. Cause we're all there to see Norman Carey end up happy. We don't care about Lou <laughs> Cheney, I'm sure. There we are. That, that's the thing. I, I, we, we focus on the focal point and, and, and that's, that's the point. So we have, uh, you know, we have the title character, and and we say, and this is why, you know, Notre Dame de Paris, that was nice, also Victor Hugo, but it was only when it was the hunchback that people had an idea, what what are we talking about here? Are we going to be looking at tales of a church? And uh, so we say, no, there's this character that may not have been the most uh, important character in, in the novel, but he certainly has become the focal point now, again, to demonstrate, as with Phantom of the Opera, as as with... Uh, the man who laughs, that you don't have to be the handsomest guy in the world because you have a soul. And perhaps people can see that soul and they can relate to it, even if ultimately, like Quasimodo, you end up alone, or like Eric, you end up dead. Occasionally, like Gwynplaine, you get the girl. Not Um, too frequently, but occasionally. Occasionally, (laughs) yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the the director who I probably... uh, unwittingly benefited the most from Lenny disappearing from the scene is very much in that vein. And that's James Whale. I mean, I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it seems likely that, you know, Lenny would have wound up with Dracula and, and Frankenstein quite yeah. possibly, or else Robert Flory would have. And, uh, you or know, Todd Browning. Or Todd Browning. And Whale then kind of stepped into that same vein with that, that sort of sympathy for the monster that's that's so mm-hmm. affecting uh, and effective. All right. Well, then we get to uh, the second of the two films that Flickr Alley has just released, uh, which is The Last Warning. Kind of mm-hmm. a return to what The Cat in the Canary was, except this time it's set in a Broadway theater, which I have to admit is a little odd when you see a great big Broadway theater on a major street in New York, and it's abandoned as if it's, a, you know, an old castle in Transylvania. But, there you uh, go. <laughs> but, but tell me about that. All righty. Well, what we've got with The Last Warning is, um, uh, again, it's kind of like, uh, as you say, an abandoned uh, theater on Broadway uh, as though uh, we're, we're living or, or, or expression in an expressionistic way. You, you turn the corner and move from realism into expressionism and, and whatever, whatever. But um, it's a very interesting film. Um, I had covered this for a book some years back where I could not get uh, my hands on a complete print of the film there there was a, a cut down version and what have you that was totally silent because this was re-released with with uh, you know talking sequences and what have you you've got uh, a situation where this actor john woodward is his specter is supposedly haunting the theater and uh people are found uh, dead 
the the plot is as you said it, it's cat and canary it, it, instead of being in in a mansion in, in a theater there are some expressionistic touches in it you, there are backstage scenes and what have you uh that you've got um you you've got secret passages with with people coming uh, into the light and and it really is striking and it does remind you of, of like some very basic shots in in uh, cabinet of caligari it's, it's got elements of cat and the canary and also elements of, of phantom of the opera instead of the opera house you've got this theater and you've got laura uh, laplante is in here again there's comic relief in the film but it, it is not her uh, she's not given much of a chance to do anything than to, other than to react in what what became a stereotypical damsel in distress sort of situation. But you did have people like Slim Somerville and, and whatever. Burt um, Yeah, Burt, Burt Rose, of course. Um, and, and you've got, as villains, you've got Montague Love and uh, all, all of that sort of thing. So to a certain extent, what you've got there is can we say typecasting at yeah. that particular point? <laughs> so we're, we've moved from originality to a classic um, and then to a, a hemi-demi-semi remake, if you will. <laughs> it was at this point in, in uh, 29, they had been talking about the return of the Phantom of the Opera uh, for several years. Uh, and uh, it, it was thought to be, oh my goodness, because that, that was a big hit all over the place. But uh, number one, Cheney was no longer working for Universal. He was now over at, at MGM. And uh, Irving Thalberg, who had been Carl Lemley's number number one guy until Carl Jr. kind of took over, he went to MGM and, and signed Cheney on. And Cheney did a lot of, uh, well, just about all of his his later work there, which were not really that many costume, grotesque sort of things, tell it to the Marines and what have you, uh, where he had an opportunity to, to act w w without um, melodramatically acting. And uh, so they couldn't do uh, Return of the Phantom without Lon Chaney. So they, they put um, some uh, opera performances in there. They basically reworked that where uh, the Phantom remained silent because uh, Cheney was not allowed to dub anything, but Norman Carey and Mary Philbin dubbed away and all that kind of stuff. So while this thing is coming out, The Last Warning, which is essentially the Phantom of Broadway, <laughs> you have yeah. Phantom of uh, the Opera, uh, n not returning as Return of the Phantom, but just as a sound reissue. It it's kind of intriguing because... Uh, w with respect to uh, Phantom of the Opera, the, the musical, uh, a sequel was written to that, which wasn't anywhere near the success that the original right. <laughs> was, which is still on Broadway. And you want to say, you know, realize uh, too much of a good thing isn't so hot. Right. <laughs> um, just to go off on a tangent, my, my younger boy and I went to see Godzilla the other day. Uh -huh. And you have all of these coming attractions, and they're reworking the Terminator. They're reworking Rambo. They're reworking Fast and Fear. You say, is there nothing new under the sun? These are all... Let's drag this thing out of the cupboard or out of the basement and, and dust them off and see what we can't do. So to a certain extent, that's where we've got with the last warning. But the thing is with the last warning, it, it, it's, it does grab your attention because uh, unless 
you're an old duck like me who, who who brings it up to younger folk that you know if you've seen Phantom of the Opera, essentially you're looking at it now and whatever. Um, it's it's a different kind of a a take. Um, it's uh, really kind of. How can I put this? It's not uh, the, the comic stuff is not terribly much with cheap laughs. Laney's um, masterwork in here you can see with the lighting effects, Michael. You know where, where you see the various camera angles that are I don't want to say unknown in the United States, but they're completely different from close up, extreme close up. You know two shot or back in talking heads and all this kind of stuff where you do have a more creative use of lighting. Um, the, 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 one of the tales I'm sure that you've heard is, is Cheney senior got so upset with Rupert Julian in Phantom of the Opera that he told him at a certain point, you direct everybody else. I'll take care of my own stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a lot of the more famous scenes, the unmasking, whatever, whatever, uh, supposedly with the work of, of Cheney and the cameraman and the lighting guy working together where Julian went off to the side and had a beer or was uh, watching the race sheet or something along those lines. But um, again, what we've got here is, is a, an interesting murder mystery and uh, a lot of screaming and carrying on and people disappearing. And, and uh, it's half old dark house, although it's old dark theater, it's half Phantom of the Opera, except you know, the Phantom is uh, really a, a son of a gun and a murderer and not, not just somebody who's uh, misunderstood and passionate and a little bit nuts. And um, with with a good cast of, of that has been typed um, for people who were in the 20s and 30s who would look at it and go, OK, this fits and that fits in a way that Conrad Fidus, Charlie Chan would not have fit. Yeah. yeah. So. I yeah, no, I think it's it's a film that I mean. Again, even more than Cat in the Canary, maybe the the pieces are over familiar, but the filmmaking brio is so good. It's just mm-hmm. you know, it's just a lot of fun to watch, and and again, shows you how fluid technique had gotten at the end, at the end of the uh, silent era. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. it proves to be the last thing that Paul Lenny would do because yeah. he has an abscessed tooth and dies uh, at, I believe, 44. So yes, um, a lot of what-ifs where, as with Cheney, what would have happened? One can imagine uh, Lenny you know, directing Vite, but one can also imagine him directing Cheney in Dracula. One can imagine exactly. who knows who he would have directed in, in Frankenstein or what else he would have done mm-hmm. in the 30s at, at Universal. So. Well, this is that that is a completely, totally valid argument because again, uh, we we had from a publicity point of view where you had the great search for Dracula, uh, and you had all of these um, character actors who basically uh, were all cut of the same cloth, you know, medium tall and and fairly dark, uh, dark hair and what have you, capable of projecting mystique and what have you, and and originally again. Uh, the notion of, well, Laney and and Cheney, although Cheney was no longer there, so Ch- Laney and Fight, and then, uh, you know, at, at one point, Fight went off to back to Germany to study his English, which is kind of intriguing why he wouldn't have stuck around here. But so he, he was nowhere to be found when Dracula was being cast, even if somebody else like Todd Browning were taking over. So he had the great search. And... Um, uh, it's it's an intriguing situation, as you say. The what ifs 
are, are amazing. Uh, what, what if James Whale had not grown tired of the Frankenstein thing after Bride? He was assured that you're done with Frankenstein yeah, after yeah. this one, but you owe us one. And, and it, uh, a lot of discussion has been going on about Karloff's becoming tired and when something else, the humanity and the monster disappeared. And then ultimately, when you had Bela in there, Bela was a fabulous Dracula, but it must have killed him not only to be walking in Karloff's boots, <laughs> literally, probably, but uh, to, to have to uh, mouth some of the most inane dialogue ever before it was eradicated. So all of all of these situations uh, make for fascinating discussions where you have people who, uh, for whom old films are the ones we're discussing right now, instead of saying, oh, we're going to go. It's like listening to old music. Uh, for so many kids nowadays, oldies were done about 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the Beatles, aren't they at the Museum of Natural History? No, 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 and that sort of thing. But it's, um, it's a fascinating situation, and I am just, first of all, I was flattered to death to be approached by Flickr Alley to... to talk a little bit about these films. Uh, I am a big fan of Conrad Veidt and a big fan of Paul Lenny. And um, to see uh, a resurgence in interest in, in Lenny, if I can talk about a resurgence, that might be a very poor phrase, um, but a, a renaissance perhaps of, of awareness of, of this great director and this very clever man uh, coming back into his own. It was a number of years ago that um, Kino did, did uh, a restoration of The Man Who Laughs. And um, uh, I thought to myself at that point, this is great. We're going to uh, get into um, Laney and we're going to get into Veidt. And people are going to look at Conrad Veidt in a different way than either from one situation, which would be Chesedee the Somnambulist, or to Major Strausser, <laughs> right. and there's nothing in between. Nothing in between exactly. uh, or, you know, and with Paolini to turn around and say, well, what is what is he what has he done really? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Cat in the Canary. Uh, that was with Bob Hope, right? And they go, yeah. no. <laughs> so, um, but but that could it, have been it, too. He could have done the remake. It, there you go. Exactly right. And it would have been intriguing to see how uh, a dozen years later, with the impact of America and, and the, the uh, rising of uh, a, a lot of comedic geniuses, vocal geniuses like Fields and the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy, and then a little bit more sophisticated with the teaming of Hope and Crosby or whatever, how he would have approached it. And you can only wonder uh, how if he brought across the expressionism, if he brought that back out of the cupboard or out of the basement, how that would have uh, struck people, because it was that point in 39 that we were having the uh, renaissance of the horror picture. Right. Uh, it would have been for, fashionable for a few, again. Few years, yeah, when Universal was, was bought out, uh, when the Lemleys sold it out, that was the end of the horror movie for a while, and uh, we had things like the Crime Club, and... Um, which were film, you know, cinematizations of some decent uh, detective novels and, and some not-so-hot stuff. Um, but you had the, the rise to the floor of that sort of thing. And, it, and again, that was the detective situation for Universal, while Charlie Chan was doing a great job and, and uh, Sherlock still hadn't, you know, gotten got in into it until uh, Rathbone and Bruce uh, did Hound of the Baskervilles. But uh, you had the Thin Man and all of these other folks, the Falcon and, and whatever, and Universal had nothing, really, except for the Crime Club. 
And had they had Paolani and had they had uh, other people um, who had a little bit of a background in that, it might have been a different story. That's the Berkeley School of Music score from The Man Who Laughs. The restored The Man Who Laughs, with that score and the original 1928 movie tone score, and the restored The Last Warning with score by Arthur Barrow, are out now from Flickr Alley. I'll have links for them and for John Soyster's books in the show post at nitrateville.com. This podcast is a treat for any lover of classic film. The stories and interviews done are unique among classic Hollywood podcasts. They are almost always interesting and frequently fast. If you love any realm of classic film, if you enjoy the nuance of research, technology, and social history behind what comprises a film, you should have subscribed to this podcast. These are a few of the comments left at iTunes recently about Nitrateville Radio. In the manner of things technological, iTunes is apparently going away to be replaced by Apple Podcasts. But one thing I'm sure won't go away is that the enthusiasm shown for a podcast through its ratings and reviews helps raise its visibility, so more people hear about it and start subscribing. So please, if you like this podcast, take a minute and leave us a rating and a review at whatever Apple calls it now, and help attract others to Nitrateville Radio. Then come check out nitrateville.com, a fun, moderated-to-be-civil site where you can meet other vintage film fans. Thanks and welcome. Bet you thought it was your set. Just me, I have a slow focus. Okay, Ted. Ernie Kovacs made a few movies, but his fame came as an anarchic fiddler with the medium of television in the 1950s and early 1960s. That legacy might only be rumor, though, if not for the diligent efforts of his widow, Edie Adams, who preserved as much of his work as she could find before the networks recycled the tapes and tossed out the kinescopes. Kovacs, who died in a car accident in 1962, would have been 100 this year and a number of releases will commemorate that fact, including reissuing two earlier boxes of his work as the 9-DVD Centennial Edition from Shout Factory and the Grammy-nominated Ernie Kovacs album, which came out in the pre-home video days of 1976, from Omnivore Recordings. Making these releases happen has been the work of Edie's son, Josh Mills. I spoke with Mills, who lives in Los Angeles, recently. I'm a... Ernie Kovacs fan going back to that uh, PBS series. And I actually own the album, although it did sort of give me the idea, um, hmm, maybe albums weren't the place to put Ernie Kovacs. <laughs> he was waiting for VHS, so. Yes. Uh, and ironically, uh, we have just reissued that record with bonus tracks. <laughs> <laughs> So it's coming out July 5th, so uh, it just, uh, I should send you the press release. Uh, it's pretty interesting. But yes, yes. Let's talk about, I mean, first of all, what's your, explain your relationship to him. I know you're born after he died for yeah. for a particular reason. So. Yes. Um, okay, so uh, 
my mom uh, was Edie Adams, and uh, I was born in 1968. Ernie died in 62. Uh, so my my dad was um, her second husband. His name is Marty Mills. He was a photographer, and I um, run the both her estate and Ernie's estate. Um, and because of we get into this a little bit more, but because of my mom's preservation efforts, the only reason that uh, I run that part of it is that my mom saved all of uh, Ernie's kinescopes and tapes and whatever, audio air checks, whatever else there was. She bought it, paid for it, and that's why I run it. <laughs> yeah. Um, was he kind of a ghostly presence in your house growing up? Oh, absolutely. Um, there was uh, definitely moments where, I mean, I grew up in a house where my last name was Mills, my mom's last name was Adams, my sister uh, was named Kovacs, and the third husband of my mom's last name was Condoli. So there were five people, four last names, so it was always <laughs> a little confusing. Um, but yeah, Ernie was sort of like this guy that always appeared in pictures. I mean, I'm talking when I was like five, six, seven years old. Um, and I lived in the house that my mom and Ernie lived in. So I was in the den and I, you know, saw the macabre sort of, uh, very manly things that Ernie loved, like dueling pistols and bearskin <laughs> rugs and things like that. Um, sword suits of armor. I mean, you name it. Um, my mom said he was a big kid and he really was. Um, so I did see a lot of that stuff all the time. And I, I've so told this story before, but I was a, a big fan of uh, the Adams Family TV show, and there was a point where I had a a moment where I thought to myself, "Are we the Adams Family, <laughs> or did they did they base it off of us?" Because my mom's last name was Adams, right? And there was really that kind of macabre sort of stuff in the house uh, that was very similar to uh, Gomez Adams. So I kind of had a moment where I was like. Am I related to them, or are they they based the show on us? It was very very weird for a kid. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, let's let's just talk about uh, Ernie Kovacs and who he was. I mean, people, I don't know, it usually winds up with people name checking David Letterman and things like that because, of right. course, nothing in the past matters except for how it reflects on today. Uh, but uh, you know, where did he come from? Was he in radio at all before this? How did how did he become a, uh, a celebrity and television figure? Yeah, so Ernie, uh, his his earliest professional writing gigs were writing. He wrote for uh, a publication that's still going called the Trentonian, his hometown of Trenton, New Jersey, and he wrote a column. Um, and I was just in Trenton for a uh, Kovac Centennial uh, event. And uh, heard that, you know, some of his columns, you know, would talk about things like uh, a great restaurant that was not too far from Trenton, New Jersey. And then all of a sudden Ernie had a free meal. So he, <laughs> he, he was he was OK with writing about things because he didn't get paid very much money, I think, to write it. So he, he had to eat. Um, so he was a columnist. Uh, those columns do exist uh, in some form at the Trenton Public Library's uh, Trentonian Collection. He then went on to uh, radio, uh, WTTM in Trenton, and was known for his antics. Um, he, you know, did a, a thing where he tried to stay up, stay up for an entire week and broadcast. Um, he would literally put a microphone uh, on the railroad tracks to hear like a train coming. 
Uh, so he would do wacky things and people, even in Trenton now, you know, their father, they told me a story about their father did this, or they remember the Ernie's crazy story about that. Um, but he then after radio went on to, uh, television, local television, Philadelphia, WPTZ and became sort of a weird cause celebre. He did many different shows, one called, uh, deadline for dinner, which was also what he called, uh, <laughs> dead lion for breakfast. Um, <laughs> So it was a cooking show. Uh, he did a morning show. He did an afternoon show. Uh, and there's more to talk about here. But then he went on to uh, to uh, New York and, and went to uh, WCBS uh, uh, television in 1952. You, there's a certain type of radio comic that we think of from the 40s, you know, Bob Hope on down to, you know, sure. the, the Fred Allens and Henry Morgans. And Ernie, to me, like Bob and Ray – seems to be kind of a next generation from that in the sense that they were all they were much more about poking fun at the medium they were on you know not only doing parodies but also just you know stretching you know finding humor in being on large amounts of radio or television with not much to fill it with so you know just letting the mind wander <laughs> and come up with crazy things uh it yeah. does seem to be you know, I would I would call it a little bit more hipster, maybe even uh, than what had come before it. Yeah, I think Ernie, uh, much like his his comedy, uh, visual comedy, he was very much there to tell you that you know we're all in on this. You know, I, I I'm going to break the fourth wall. You know, you're watching me or listening to me, and I know that you're watching me. Um, it wasn't a preconceived idea of like, let's just pretend and make believe that, you know, <laughs> we're, we're in this world. Yeah. That we're uh, Jack Benny's house. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and the funny thing is, and this is, I think what would be interesting to some of your listeners is that we just found about 120 hours of audio only air checks, uh, in our archive. And some of them are, are, television that was there's no picture it's just uh, audio air checks on uh sort of acetates <clears throat> excuse me but some of them are his radio shows and going through them uh with ben modell who is sort of the you know he's he's basically the kovacs archivist and my mom's archivist Edie adams uh, as well but what we found in some of these things are both interviews but also really like long gags. And some of them are, you know, four minutes long each, but they'll be about a specific topic that he'll do 10 episodes of. Um, and he really did – he used it conventionally, but he did it in such a weird way. Like one of them is this thing called Choco Spin, which is a commercial for chocolate spinach. <laughs> yeah. And how it's good for you but it's got to taste good and all this other stuff. And it's just – it's mind-blowing how out there that was for, you know, Eisenhower 50s America. I mean, it just doesn't seem like, you know, any other comedian at all. Well, and, you know, I think one of the things, too, in, in podcasting is perhaps the ultimate example of this is that, you know, as someone who's occasionally been a guest on radio, you know, it's it's the highly rated expensive shows that make you get it over within 15 minutes and they're just, you know, if you lag for a second, they've got another question. Where yeah. less expensive airtime, you can just go on and on where your fancy takes you. And I feel there's a lot of that in, in Kovacs. And people apparently were were willing to indulge it, even as I suspect the, the, the suits were kind of mystified more often than not. 
it's funny when you watch his shows, especially his NBC uh, shows from about 54, 55, 56. Uh, he's so relaxed and so calm and mellow and uh, he wants to have everybody have a good time. But if a joke goes wrong or if a set piece falls or if something's not there where it's supposed to be at the time, so be it. You know, he kind of makes a joke about the fact that it's that he's not getting paid very much and this isn't the greatest show. And, you know, he, he's very relaxed, more so than any other entertainer I've ever seen. He kind of likes the improv of things going wrong. So maybe the more the better. Um, and I do think that, you know, with podcasts, you know, some go two and a half hours, some go three hours. I mean, it's amazing. But, you know, my mom would tell me stories that when they were when they were on uh television in the early 50s they would be on so much that they would literally try to kill you know five minutes so ernie would put on a classical record they'd tape a kaleidoscope to uh, an orange juice can a frozen orange juice can and they would literally just kill five minutes doing that because they couldn't think of anything else to do to fill yeah. the hour. so if you can imagine killing five minutes in today's world that just would never happen yeah 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 Let's let's talk about the the suits. I mean, what was his relationship with the various uh, employers that he had over the years? He seems to have been both desirable and kind of feared for where what he might be up to. Well, as as my mom would say, you know, if you were a, you were a fan of Ernie, if you could find him, uh, <laughs> he he was on morning shows. He was on every. He was on four networks. He was on morning, afternoon, n- late night. You know, they didn't know what to do with Ernie. Ernie frequently needed money, so he was happy to, you know, take whatever, you know, they gave him. But he basically said to them, if you're going to hire me, you cannot interfere. And there were there's a a famous story my mom told me where at some point in the 50s, early like 55, let's say, uh, he was sort of brought into a boardroom and they were going to the network uh, and the brass was going to try to basically tell Ernie, you need writers you need to do this. This is the only way this show is going to work. And Ernie, in the middle of winter, he sat there. He listened for about a half hour. His overcoat was sitting there. His briefcase was sitting there. And after he'd had about enough, he said, would you excuse me a minute? Walked out. Never came back. He walked, you know, 30 blocks in the snow <laughs> to get home. And by the time he'd gotten home, he'd come up with the idea for his one book, Zumar, which is a fictional tale about television advertising, uh, and celebrity. So not only did he not want you telling him what to do, he basically tried to piss them off by writing about how ridiculous game shows were in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of giving him a game show, even more than Groucho, it's just like, no one's going to care about this game show. <laughs> You're just... Yeah. Well, and Ernie did do a game show, Take a Good Look, in the early 60s when he was in Los Angeles. And it was the most obscure and obtuse game show you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, he was upset if the panel could actually guess the clues that he had created for the show. So even if they got it, he would say, well, let's just run the other clip. Let's just make sure you see that. And my mom maintained that even though he was doing this ridiculous, silly game show – he was basically creating a whole new special using uh, blackout sketches that he was filming for Take a Good Look 
but then was going to repurpose them for a special where he didn't even have to show up. <laughs> he could just put it all together and he didn't have to do anything else. He had already, he was creating two shows in one essentially. Huh. Um, well, let's uh, switch to the other question here, which is or the other issue, which is really that, uh, Ernie Kovacs is a preservation story. We talk yes. about film preservation. We talk about film preservation a lot on this podcast. Uh, but TV preservation is something that I don't think anybody even knows how much is saved and how much is lost. You read about these famous shows and you don't even know, you know, right. does does Playhouse 90 exist? I couldn't tell you. Some right. does because yes. it's on YouTube. But beyond that, who knows? Uh, so yeah, tell tell me about uh, saving Ernie's work. Uh, well, this is where my mom Edie Adams comes in. Um, she was a graduate of Juilliard, and she really appreciated uh, quality. And she knew what Ernie was doing was was quality work, and was different, and was weird, and all that stuff. But when Ernie died in '62, she was made aware by one of the technical people on his last uh, ABC specials that uh, the networks were taking his tapes, and I believe they were videotapes then, uh, and erasing them and using them for blank tapes, essentially weather reports and you know PSAs and things like that, because, hey, why would you save a tape? There was really no need, right? I mean, that, in 1962, that made sense. Um, my mom, with the little bit of insurance money she got, went to a lawyer first named George Zachary and went to all three networks and any other place she could find uh, Kovacs tapes and said, if it says Kovacs, I will buy it. And she got a quick claim from all these places. And that's the only reason that this stuff exists is that my mom literally paid for and bought back Ernie's entire library that exists. Uh, we do find some things that, that, you know, we recently were made aware that the last Take a Good Look episode, which we didn't have, is found. And, and we're going to try to work with them on, on that. But by and large, I would say 99% of the Ernie Kovacs stuff that's out there was preserved by my mom. So I get people at the Library of Congress or the UCLA Film and Television Archive or all over saying, you know, if there was an award for television preservation, your mom is a first ballot inductee. She really did a great job. What did she do with them in all those years after that? Well, I think initially, you know, we're talking 1962, let's say let's say mid 60s. You know, there was a company called Beacons and that exists, but that was really just a file storage place. There wasn't a ton of places to store film or television uh, material. So for a while, I think she stored them in her garage because it was dark and it was, uh, you know, a good place. But eventually uh, it did go to Beacons at some point, And then it went to another company called Bonded. Um, and we basically had been paying for storage for about 30, 40 years, um, which is, again, a testament to my mom. I mean, there were many times where my mom had a lot less money than she <laughs> than she should have. And those bills always got paid. And she really her, – her answer to me was when I asked her why did you save this, she just said I knew it was special. So she really had an idea in, in her, her mind that what Ernie did was way more uh, important than you know, other things, and, and it just needed to be saved. So there was the PBS series in the 70s. Was there anything before that that made major use of this archive of, of Ernie's stuff? 
you know, it's funny, not really. Um, and we just reconnected with a guy named John Lolas, who was the producer of that uh, PBS special in the 70s. It was great to talk to him because uh, he came to the Trenton event that we just had for Ernie uh, last week about his centennial. And it was great to basically tell him that almost everyone we talked to was reintroduced to Kovacs from that thing, that one program. Um, and uh, essentially, well, there was a an audio uh, uh, record that came out on Columbia in 1976 that was nominated for Comedy Grammy in 1977. Um, so that was right around the time of the 77 PBS stuff. But prior to that, I mean, I've seen some, you know, archival articles that my mom has mentioned that she was trying to do things with them or trying to, you know, you know, curate them in some way, but not really. It was, it was pretty much the 77 PBS best of Kovac stuff that kind of kicked everything off again. Yeah. My one memory that I think kind of gives an example is that I, I remember when I finally actually saw the Nairobi trio after my parents describing it to me as being something that they saw, it wasn't how it was in my head. (laughs) So it's pretty clear to me, you know, that's evidence that in 1977, It was talked about, but not seen until then. You know, my mom had told me stories and I've never been able to sort of validate them or whatever that, you know, there, there is the story that Letterman's writers went over to the uh, museum of broadcasting, which is now the Paley center, uh, and went over and watched a bunch of Ernie stuff before, uh, late night with David Letterman started. And Meryl Marco, who was uh, a writer and also then uh, David Letterman's girlfriend, confirmed all that. But there was another story that uh, both Belushi and Aykroyd at 30 Rock, when Saturday Night Live was starting, found a bunch of Ernie tapes and sort of saved those or, you know, you know, kept them from the scrap heap. But I've never been able to confirm that story. So um but the idea of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in 1976 finding a cart of, you know, Ernie Kovacs tapes uh, lends the mind to think about all sorts of great stuff. So who knows? <laughs> Although I would say, I mean, Saturday Night Live was never really that visual. And maybe occasionally if they did a movie parody, they would ape the style of the movie. But there's, you know, there it's still essentially vaudeville sketch comedy, the same as Milton Berle. And... The idea, you know, the the kind of visual play, I, I wouldn't say even Letterman ever did that sort of thing. He got the sort of, what the heck, we're on TV, let's, you know, let's make fun of it attitude. Yeah. But yeah. there really hasn't been anybody who's played with it in that visual way. It's still, it's still essentially vaudeville on a box. Yeah, I you know I think that the people like uh, I know Chevy Chase who was uh, another weird connection to John Lolas, uh, the guy who did the PBS special. He worked as a producer, I believe, on the movie The Groove Tube, which was Chevy Chase and Richard Belzer and things like that. Right. Um, so there was a lot of visual stuff that they were, I think, parodying uh, in the early '70s, and when uh, Saturday Night Live won their first, uh, Emmy award in 1976 for writing. Chevy Chase was the one who said, and thank you, Ernie Kovacs on air. Um, so they were definitely influenced by him, but I don't think there's ever been anyone that's ever played with the medium. Maybe Andy Kaufman. I've, I've seen some specials that he's done that are really out there and really bizarre. Um, but it, I don't think it had like sort of a mainstream, audience that Ernie did at the at the time. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just that so many of these people came out of improv. So it's, it's geared to, to acting credible scenes, not yeah. thinking of it like Buster Keaton on acid or something like that. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, Salvador, I would say he's sort of like the uh, comedians, uh, Salvador Dali or sort of Dadaist or something like that. Yeah. 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 yeah often, this isn't so. This isn't exactly funny, but it's so weird that uh, I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing was, my mom said that he would essentially hear a piece of music, like the one for uh, the Nairobi Trio. She said in 15 minutes he had worked out exactly what that was going to be. So things hit him in a way, uh, and music I think had a huge uh, part of it uh, to do with it, but. Uh, you know, I think that he would hear something. I mean, even like the uh, Esquivel stuff uh, that he did in the ABC specials or things like that, he just heard something and it became visual to him. He was a unique guy that way. All right. So what are we, we're getting the album reissued and anything else uh, Kovaxian on the, the horizon yeah. here? Yeah, well, there is a um, Kovacs Centennial, Ernie Kovacs Centennial DVD box set, which is, I think, nine discs um, that Shout Factory's put out, which is pretty much like the, the I think it's the first two volumes of the best of Ernie Kovacs that we've, uh, the Ernie Kovacs collection, excuse me, um, that we've put out. So that's the Centennial Edition. There is the Centennial Edition of the Ernie Kovacs record, which uh, is coming out on July 5th. Um, and next year, uh, I put together with uh, a guy named Pat Thomas, who is a, a great writer as well, a coffee table book that's coming on Ernie Kovacs from our archives. So a lot of it is... Some of his art uh, and some of it is just weird, you know, ephemera that we found, uh, you know, credit cards or, you know, his card to the aqueduct racetrack. Um, but interspersed with that is some of his writings that uh, he did for a lot of men's magazines, let's say, in the 1950s um, and weird stuff that we just were able to find where there's just a moment where I would look at stuff and I was like, this can't just sit in my house. Like People have to see this crazy stuff, I think. So that's in 2020. Thanks to my guests, Ben Modell, John Soyster, and Josh Mills. And special thanks to Ben for connecting me with Josh. He receives a year's supply of chocolate-covered spinach. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And to leave a rating or a review at iTunes, or whatever replaces it, to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. Thanks.